So the JobKeeper rules have two separate divisions. One is regarding employees and one is regarding people who are not employees who are essentially deemed to be business participants. And the rules for the business participants category are a little different. And one reason that's necessary is because those people are not employees. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Tax Talks. This is update number eight. We started getting confused. So to prevent any future confusion, we will number the updates from here onwards. This is Heide Robson and thank you to class for sponsoring this episode. The JobKeeper rules are finally out and tell us more about how the JobKeeper payment will actually work. Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney will walk you through the rules and answer a long list of questions. And this interview was recorded on Thursday afternoon, the 16th of April. The first question to Andrew is, when were the rules actually published? States on the rules that they were dated and issued on the, the 9th of April and, and registered as a legislative instrument on that date. Uh, I don't remember them being available on the 9th of April and, and I've only become aware of them a little while after that. But yeah, 9th of April is the official date that the, the rules were issued. Do the new rules had any surprises in them? Yeah, the rules, as a general comment, the rules contain a few things that, that were not known previously, but the majority of the rules is really expanding upon material provided by Treasury to date through fact sheets and FAQs. We now know a lot more about the rules and, and I guess the nitty gritty operation of them, but there are still a few areas where there are still some gaps where, where more information is actually required particularly regarding the decline in turnover test. Is there anything that kind of completely changed in the rules from what was said previously, or is it just that gaps started to I be think, filled out more? Well, I think the main, the main thing probably from my perspective is, is the rules regarding how you, how you calculate the t decline in turnover. It was suggested that those rules would be relatively flexible, but exactly what that meant no one quite knew what sort of mechanism that would that would be done via. We now know exactly how that works and, and what mechanisms are used as mainly the projected GST turnover mechanism. So so that's an area where it wasn't sort of 100% clear from, from the previous material how exactly that would work. So let's talk about the turnover test to start with, because that is the biggest point. And of course, it makes the biggest difference. If the employer doesn't meet the turnover test, then the whole thing is off the table. Whereas whether one employee is in or out, it doesn't affect the employer that much if he has quite a few. But mm. the turnover test is really the huge gateway that everybody needs to go through. And I think something has changed. And I think originally the turnover test was going to be a continuous test so that you constantly for each month had to check whether you still had a 30% of whatever percentage it is drop in turnover. But I think this has now changed to a once-off test. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So the test is now generally, it's a once-off test. And I suspect the reason for that was that trying to work out the test on a fortnightly basis or a month monthly basis may have just been unworkable in the end. So how the test works is it's a point in time test. You test whether you make it. If you make it, then you're in. If you don't, doesn't mean that you're permanently excluded. You can try again, but it means that for that time, you're not eligible for the program, for the JobKeeper program. If you pass it in June, you can't claim for April and May, but you can claim for June and then July, August. So you just need to get through the door once. And even after that, your, you know, your turnover can go through the roof. It doesn't matter as long as you squeeze through the door once. Yeah, the way the scheme works is it's, it's broken up into uh, fortnights or more particularly JobKeeper fortnights, which is, is basically just a fortnight between the period of 30 March 2020 and 27 September 2020, which works out to be 26 weeks or 13 fortnights. So 
you can qualify at any time during that period. It doesn't even have to be a month. It's, it's actually on a fortnightly, you test on a fortnightly basis. You don't have to test on a fortnightly basis. You can, but you don't have to because most companies reporting wouldn't be done on a fortnightly basis. Although in zero, you can, of course, run whatever yes, reporting so period you want. I should clarify for that. The point in time is at any fortnight, but the actual test period that you need to look at is either a month or a quarter. And I can go through that in detail, but you can't test. Uh, you can't say, well, this fortnight was a terrible fortnight. I'm into the scheme. It has to be either a month or a quarterly assessment. Yes. So there's really, there's a number of conditions that an employer needs to meet in order to be eligible for a job keeper payment for an individual. In those conditions, one key condition is that the entity needs to qualify for the JobKeeper scheme. So if the entity doesn't qualify for the JobKeeper scheme, then that's the end of the story. Whether the entity qualifies for the JobKeeper scheme is also actually important for the Commercial Tenancies Code of Conduct rules because those rules are intended to be binding only for entities that qualify for the JobKeeper scheme. So there are multiple reasons why being qualifying for the JobKeeper scheme is important. So if you qualify for the JobKeeper scheme, I know we talk about the commercial tenancy codes tomorrow, but there is a chance that if you qualify for the JobKeeper's payment, there is a chance that you will also be able to ask for rent waiver and other measures from your landlord. Well, so to be precise on that, you need to be an entity that qualifies for the JobKeeper scheme. You could have no employees. You're still an entity that qualifies for the JobKeeper scheme. It's just that you have no eligible employees and therefore receive no money. So there could be situations like that. Oh, but, really? Okay. Yeah, but, but for the entity to qualify for the JobKeeper scheme, there's two conditions that need to be met. The first is the entity needs to be carrying on a business in Australia as on of 1 of March. March 2020. So... Note that that's about carrying on a business in Australia. It's not about being a resident of Australia for tax purposes or having an ABN or anything like that. It's carrying on a business in Australia. So you could have entities that are foreign residents that meet that test, not necessarily Australian companies, but actually foreign entities. The second criteria is that the entity needs to meet the decline in turnover test. So two criteria. And obviously, the one that's going to be the most work to work through is the decline in turnover test. Can I just very quickly pick up on that? So you need to be conducting a business on the 1st of March. And it doesn't mean that you're an Australian resident. The Australian residency requirement is for the employees, but for the entity, there is no requirement to be an Australian resident. So yeah. a permanent establishment could qualify for the JobKeeper payment. Yeah, you could have a permanent establishment of foreign entities that qualifies. And, and conversely, you could have some entity that employs Australians overseas that could qualify as well, that, that, so long as they conduct some activity in Australia still. They, they may not necessarily even be a permanent establishment in Australia. They could be something less than that. But the test is carrying on a business in Australia. So, so that's the first test. And then the second test is this famous turnover test. Yep. That what it is all about. Yep. So, so the turnover test, and, and just before we get to that, there are certain exceptions. They mainly apply to government entities, banks, and entities that are in liquidation. So and, there are entities that are not covered. Yes, and also industries or entities that are specifically excluded because they're subject to a special rescue mission. Yep, yep, correct. So if you're not one of those, then just those two criteria. And, and the big one is this decline in turnover test. So this decline in turnover test, when I, when I read it, it took me a little while to get my head around how, how it actually works. What's required is the entity needs to test at a time within a JobKeeper fortnight. That's the first thing. So the first JobKeeper fortnight starts on the 30th of March and goes into April. So they need to test at a time during that fortnight. So that time could be 30th of March or it could be 1st of April. It is relevant because it will determine how what figures are used. What you then need to look at is the entity's projected GST turnover for that test period and compare that to the entity's 
current GST turnover for a previous comparison period. Yes, okay, hold on, just look at it again. So the first JobKeeper payment fortnight starts on the 30th of March and finishes on the 12th of April. So just finished yep. this yep. Sunday, yep, the 12th correct. of April. So I look at what GST turnover I had in this fortnight. But no, 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 not the fortnight, not the fortnight. So you need to look at your projected GST turnover for a period in which the test time occurs. So that could either be March or April or a quarter as well. Yes, but I think the test time needs to end after the 1st of April. Is that right? It looks like you can test for, for March, but I suspect most people will, will make the test for April instead. Because the numbers will just be a lot worse for April than for March. Yeah, exactly. So this turnover test period, that can either be a month, so long as the month ends after 30 March, 31 March comes after 30 March, or it could be a quarter that starts on 1 April 2020 or 1 July 2020. So in other words, the period that you look at could be the March month or the April month. And then in, in later situations, if you didn't qualify straight away, it could be a later month. Or if you don't want to use months, you can look at quarters instead. And if you look at quarters, it needs to be the quarter starting on 1 April 2020. It must start on the 1st of April. It can't be any quarter starting on the 1st of April or later. It must be that quarter. If the period concerned is the April quarter, is then it's a fortnight that wholly takes place in the April quarter, then it would be April. If we're talking about someone trying to apply later on, say in July, then it would be the July quarter. But it's either the quarter starting on 1 April 2020 or 1 July 2020. If we're looking at whether an entity apply is eligible as that today, we're looking at the quarter starting on 1 April okay. or if they wish, the month of April rather than the quarter. So if we compare quarters, then we either have to take the June quarter or the September quarter. If we talk by, if we talk by, you know, how we usually think, yes. but of course yeah. I know what you mean. You mean the quarter starting on the 1st of April or the quarter starting on the 1st of July. Yep. We can't create a quarter that consists of May, June and July, for example. No, no. So the, the rules are clear that it either needs to be a calendar month or it needs to be Q4, Q4 or, or, Q1. or Q1. Yeah, it can't be a period of... 30 days that's from the 15th of one month to the 15th of the next. It's either months or quarters. The entity can choose which comparison to make because in some scenarios, perhaps April last year was a really good month or, or a really poor month or, or however it cuts, but the entity can choose how it, how it qualifies so long as it can demonstrate that there's the sufficient drop in turnover which is generally going to be 30%, unless it's a charity or a very, very large organization, then they will need to demonstrate that there's a 30% drop by comparing their projected GST turnover for the, the current period or the test period as against the comparison period. Okay, so these are the two words, test period and comparison period. They use the words turnover test period and they, they use the words relevant comparison period. Okay, good. So we just dropped the first word. So the official terms are turnover test period. We shorten that to test period and yep. relevant comparison period. And we shorten that to comparison period. Yep. So the test period is either Q4 or Q1 if we test on a quarterly basis or it's a calendar month if we test on a monthly basis. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yep. So that's the uh, test period. And now the comparison period, of course, usually under normal circumstances would be exactly that period 12 months ago. But then if the company is new or has gone through an acquisition or rapid expansion, et cetera, then we could argue that we use a different test period. But we can only do that if we get the commissioner's permission. Well, this is an interesting situation. So, so the rules give the, the primary test. And what we've just talked about is the primary test. So if you satisfy the primary test, then you meet that requirement and you don't need to consider these alternative tests. So the primary test is basically just having your comparison period exactly 12 months before. 
Yeah, exactly. And there doesn't appear to be any sort of stated integrity provisions specific to that test. So for example, if one year ago things were really good for some reason, there's there's nothing that sort of would bring that back down. So for example, if April 19 was abnormally good, there's nothing to recognize that that might have been an anomaly. If you satisfy those numbers, then you satisfy that test. And probably the most difficult part of it is actually working out projected GST turnover because that's a forecast, that's a projection. And projections at the best of times are not always right. And particularly in sort of the uncertain times that we're in at the moment, it could be very hard for some businesses to actually make an accurate projection or a projection that would at least hold up if ever looked at by the commissioner. So there will be some work for advisors in actually determining what is their projected GST turnover. And projected GST turnover is a whole topic on itself, but it's essentially whether something is more likely than not to to be turnover. Yes, and GST turnover is taxable supplies and exempt supplies, but not input tax supplies. Yeah, there is some modifications to the GST turnover rules. I haven't gone through all of them in full detail, but it's important to note that there are some modifications to the usual GST turnover rules, which are contained in these JobKeeper rules. And then just coming back to the quarters and the months, you're free to choose whether you report your GST on a monthly or quarterly basis doesn't matter. You can use a month even if you're a quarterly lodger and you can use a quarter even if you're a monthly lodger. But I think... Where you are locked in is whether you use cash or accrual. If you report your GST usually on a cash basis, then you also have to use cash turnover for your turnover projections. And if you report GST on an accrual basis, you have to project your turnover on an accrual basis. Yeah, I think that is correct. I did have someone ask me this question earlier today, and I couldn't find a definitive answer looking at it very quickly. But my feeling is that Yes, once you've selected either cash or accruals, then that's the the system that you use to determine the projected GST turnover. Okay, but at the moment, you can't recall having seen that in the rules, in the JobKeeper rules. No, no. So that's the primary test. test. So if if an entity doesn't meet the primary test or cannot meet the primary test, so in other words, it either, if you do that comparison over those months and quarters, there's not a sufficient drop in turnover or there is no comparison period in the case of an entity that didn't exist, then you need to look at the alternative tests. Now, the funny thing is here, the rules don't actually provide for what the alternative tests are. What the rules say is that an entity can meet these decline in turnover tests if they meet an alternative test and that the commissioner can, by legislative instrument, determine an alternative test for a class of entities. So it's sort of this unusual situation where I hinted at in the previous tax talks where we've sort of got the ATO, which is normally in the position of just interpreting the law and then the courts applying it, where the ATO or the Commissioner of Taxation, more specifically, can actually make the law in this area. It's quite distinct to the concept of a private ruling or a public ruling or an atoid or or guidance. Those things are are not law and and ultimately are just the commissioner's view on how the law applies. This will actually be legislative instruments. So what I expect to see is that the ATO will come out with some publications in the form of legislative instruments that actually explain how these alternative decline in turnover tests work. I see. So we don't actually know yet how this works. No, we don't. We, we do have some information though, which is worth, probably worth going through. These rules do come with an explanatory statement as um, legislation often does. The explanatory statement to the rules gives a couple of examples of entities that may meet these alternative tests without actually explaining what the alternative tests are. They give the example of of Sebtech, which is a new company that started on 1 October 2019. So it says, this example states that, well, Sebtech started on 1 October 2019 
And for that reason, it has no comparison period which it can look back on. So there's no there's no period for April or the April quarter where it has any turnover because it didn't exist at that point in time. What it suggests is what SebTech can do in that scenario is it can use an average of its turnover for every single month from one October to March and work out essentially for the months that it has been trading, what has been its average turnover for those months. And if we can compute that figure, that will be a reasonable figure to use when determining whether there's been a 30% drop or not. So that's an example of a business that's been started after the relevant date. And it looks at completely new entity. What has it done since that point? The situation could be different for a business where it had been acquired from someone else. It might be more appropriate if there is past trading history under someone else's entity that could be more appropriate, but it does give that example. The second example that it gives is for a farming business. And what it says is, it's got the example of a farm, which in 2018 and 2019 suffered from a really bad drought. And for that reason, the revenue figures for 2018 and 2019 were a lot lower than they would otherwise be. The example states that, well, in those circumstances, a reasonable comparison period would actually be the 2017 figures because in 2017, this farming business wasn't in drought and we can work out what, a, what an appropriate figure is for that period. The farm example sounds fair. Yeah. The example of a company that just recently started and then to just take an average of the months until the 31st of March, that sounds quite harsh to me because very often the first few months of a company are really low and then after three or four months, it slowly starts getting traction. So that sounds quite harsh to me. But both of them are still quite clear-cut examples that they require an alternative test. But some businesses really take quite a while to take off. Let's say a cafe that was set up in late 2018, it took a few months. So the April quarter of 2019 was still quite low. And then gradually every month it took off and increased sales quite significantly. Mm. There, it would be more difficult to justify that an alternative test is required. But under the primary test, this company wouldn't yeah. qualify. Yeah. So, so I, think, I think in summary of where we're at at the moment, we have a primary test which for a lot of entities, will they'll be able to apply. If that's met, there's no problem. If they can't meet it, they're going to have to consider what alternative tests are available. And at the moment, we don't actually have those instruments that are being, going to be issued by the commissioner. So really without those instruments, and I, I expect that those are going to be issued over the next few days, but at the moment, we don't have the specifics of what they're going to look like. Because the question, of course, in this example of the cafe is whether they could use the March quarter and then compare the March quarter to the June quarter and then have their 30% drop. Good. So hopefully we will get more clarity on this over the next few days. But let's say we pass an alternative test that we think makes sense. Can we then just apply the alternative test or do we need to go to the commissioner and get a tick of approval? At the moment, it's not clear whether there would be any requirement to go to the commissioner. My thoughts are that what will happen is there will be a number of instruments issued where there's very clear criteria and, and it can be worked out without actually having to go to the commissioner on whether or not those alternative tests are met. But that will not most likely deal with all scenarios. So what I suspect is that there will be at least one scenario where discretion is, is required on the behalf of the commissioner. So it's a watch this space for now. There may be, there may be ones that are be able to met, be met without needing commissioner's discretion but mm -hmm. there will be there will be at least uh, some where it's it's necessary to get the commissioner's approval and that's that will be a process where there'll be sort of criteria around when what's an appropriate case and what's not and also with a ability to challenge that 
if you disagree with the commissioner as well. So it's not as if the commissioner can sort of just make it up as they go, as they go mm-hmm. but they can determine the criteria and then apply yeah. those to each entity. But I think, Andrew, this is where you will get most of your work in a year's time. Companies bringing their employees back on the books, starting to pay $1,500, hmm. bringing 100, 200 employees back on the books and then suddenly not passing an alternative. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a really fundamental thing. And if you recap back to the first tax talks that we did on the JobKeeper payment, I talked about the record keeping requirements to, to qualify. They were the, the, the pre-application requirements. And what I said then was that those are going to be very fundamental because if they don't exist when the commissioner asks for them, an entity may not be eligible for the JobKeeper payment at all. So there's definitely going to be scenarios later and later on where entities are scrutinized on whether or not they mm. meet either the primary test or an alternative test, and they will essentially need to come up with a business case or a mm. justification, including records, on why they are believe that they are eligible for the JobKeeper package. Hmm. An enormous risk for some companies that are not clear cut. Yeah, and I suppose the advice at this stage for those sort of companies would would be to approach the ATO and then try to sort of get some guidance on that. The only problem with trying to get guidance from the ATO is that payments need to be made each fortnight. So if you don't have that yes or no, you've sort of got to determine how you'd want to approach it regardless those are the tests for, for whether an entity actually qualifies for the for the scheme or not, which is only one of the criteria here for the, for the JobKeeper. It's, it's a huge a, criteria and, a huge it, and it affects both groups. You know, when we later talk mm, about yep. how we have two groups, one is proper employers with eligible employees and the other group is the business participation group. It affects both groups. It affects anybody. Absolutely. You do not get to the JobKeeper payment unless you pass through that gate. No, no, you go straight to jail. Yes. (laughs) Can I quickly ask you something else? And that is, do you have to pay the $1,500 fortnightly or can you also pay it monthly? And the reason I ask that is if you pay it monthly in arrears, of course, you can very much close your funding gap. So what the rules say is that the employer needs to satisfy the wage condition, which is essentially paying $1,500 per fortnight in respect of the individual for the fortnight. So what the rules say is that you need to make, the starting position is that you need to make payments on a fortnightly basis. So there is no monthly payment. There is some flexibility in the rules. So the starting of this wage condition part of the rules says that you satisfy the rules if for a fortnight you pay $1,500 essentially when, and then that can be net money plus withholding and, and sort of what have you. The conditions do state that if there's a regular period that the employer pays on, which is not a fortnightly basis, then you might be able to use that period so long as it is reasonable. Now, what that's getting at is paying on other than a fortnightly basis and and specifically longer than a fortnight. So it could be a 15-day cycle or it could be a monthly cycle. But the qualifying criteria is that there needs to be a period which the employer would usually pay employees. So in other words... If you currently pay on a fortnightly basis, you have to continue. It would be difficult for you to now change to being on a monthly basis and argue that that's the usual (laughs) way you pay employees because clearly to date you've paid on a fortnightly basis. So if you always paid in the middle of the month for that month, then you can, that's how you can pay. If you always paid at the end of the month for the month, that's what you can do, but whatever you did before. I believe there is some discretion for this first two fortnightly periods because the rules have just come out. I believe there is some discretion for April, but that is only for April and not sort of going forward. And this requirement to pay, that only applies to the first group where we have employers and employees. The requirement to pay doesn't apply to the yeah, business participation yeah, that, group. That's correct. These rules are broken up into two different sections. And the first is regarding employees. 
And then the second is regarding essentially business, business owners who are not employees. So the, the employees you must make a payment for. The business owners, they don't necessarily need a payment. employee has the ultimate choice of whether they want to receive JobKeeper payments through that employer or not. And they express that choice by signing the um, employee nomination notice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So from an employee perspective, you then need to work out, assuming the employer is eligible and meets those principally the decline in turnover test, you need to work out who's actually an, an eligible employee and the first thing you need to look at is, well, are they employed at the moment or during the relevant fortnight? And as that one March 2020, were they 16 years or older, a full-time or part-time employee or a long-term casual? And do they meet the residency requirements? There's then further notification requirements on top of that. And essentially, those are about the individual electing to or consenting to be part of the JobKeeper scheme. So what employers really need to do is they need to provide a notice to their employees and then the employees need to give their consent and they are essentially agreeing to be nominated to be part of the JobKeeper scheme for that employer. And that is only to their advantage, to the employee's advantage, if otherwise they would earn less than $1,500 because if they would earn $1,500 anyway, then they're better off not opting into the scheme because they lose their super. So in terms of superannuation, that would depend on whether they're actually working or not. What I understand is with the superannuation part of it, you can only opt out of paying super if they are actually not working. So it's only in the case of a, of a standing down. You're quite right though that the choice of an employee to elect in or essentially a consent may sort of in one sense, you could argue there's there's sort of nothing in it for the employee. But I suppose taking a more holistic view, the employee employer is going to get monetary benefit, which may make having the employee on the books viable, whereas it otherwise might not be. So I think sort of an, on a holistic view, there's sort of clear benefits for employees to opt into the scheme. I'm very keen to understand this more, what you just hinted at. Yeah. I've read in several places that the JobKeeper payment is not subject to super, which of course then would mean that if somebody earns, let's say, $2,000 a fortnight and then loses super on the $1,500 that is covered by the JobKeeper payment, so then they're actually disadvantaged being part of this scheme. But mm -hmm. you now said that if they actually work for this money, then they are entitled to super. Yeah, my, my understanding of the rules regarding the superannuation part of it, and I've only sort of gone through it once, is that the employer can only elect not to pay the superannuation if the employee is not actually performing work. So I, I believe that that election to get out of superannuation is only where there's been sort of a standing down type direction made. Okay, that's a very important point because so far I always thought whether you work or not doesn't matter. You don't get super on the mm -hmm. JobKeeper payment. So that's a very important point. So if you're working, you do get super. Yeah, yep. The, the yes. only other point regarding eligible employees is that there's rules regarding long-term casual employees. The rules do confirm that that status needs to be tested as at 1 March 2020. So in other words, the person needs to be needs to have been engaged on a regular and systematic basis for 12 months. If the person is a long-term casual employee, but is also a full-time or part-time employee of a somebody else, some other employer, that person is not an eligible employee for the, in respect of the casual position. Okay, that's an important point. So usually employees have the choice of whether they choose employer A or employer B. But if one of those two employers is a casual employment and one of them is a part-time or full-time employment, then they have to receive the JobKeeper payment from the part-time or full-time employment. Yeah, well, more specifically, they're not eligible for the other one. It could be in some situation where the other entity is not 
affected and hasn't lost turnover or something like that. But what the rules are getting at is that you can't sort of pick and choose, I guess, but there could be scenarios where one employer doesn't even qualify. Let's say you've got a worker who's a casual in a business that's been affected and is a part-time employee of a business that hasn't been affected. Ah, I see. Yes. That individual is not eligible as, as a casual, regardless <laughs> of the fact that they're not going to get a payment from from the other employer. So an employee doesn't have the choice when they're casual at one employer, but part-time or full-time at another employer. Mm, but yep. if they are casual at both employers, then they have the choice. Again. They have the choice. Yep. Yep. At some stage, it was commented somewhere that you can only claim the JobKeeper payment where you claim your tax-free threshold. But I think that has disappeared, that comment. I don't think that's... Yeah, well, I think that's, that's sort of disappeared in the, in, the, in the notification requirements because the notification requirements make it very clear who's claiming and, and from where, and those need to be kept on file. So I think it's that system makes it very clear who is claiming and for what business. So therefore, it doesn't matter where you claim your tax-free threshold. It just matters whether you're a casual or a full-time or part-time employee. And then Mm. if there's a difference, then you can only claim from the certain employer. Yep. The last point to make on the casual employees is that the rules do contemplate some scenarios where the casual employee involved may have not been with the business for at least 12 months. Two scenarios that the rules contemplate. The first is where you have a group of entities and you may have had an internal restructure, employees moving from one entity to another for whatever reason. What the rules say is if they were employed through another entity within, the, within a wholly owned group, then you can look through to that previous period to assess the status of that employee. The second is in relation to businesses that are sold. So the rules, are what they essentially do is they look at what's the employment of that individual and how has that changed over time? And if there's sort of someone who's employed in a business and then the business is sold by way of a business sale. Yes, an asset sale. An asset sale, you can essentially count the previous time for that employee. Yeah. And that's fair because otherwise, you know, if it was a share sale, of course, you there wouldn't be any issue. So then employees shouldn't be disadvantaged just because it's an asset sale. And sorry, when I say employees, I mean casuals. Casuals shouldn't be disadvantaged because it's an asset sale. Yes. I suppose the only thing that I can query from it is exactly how these rules will work in more sticky situations. So the rules talk about being employed in the same business So there's almost a bit of a same business test, which is relevant to sort of claiming losses in these rules. So I could think of some scenarios where you might have had some employees changing from one entity to another, but it might not necessarily be exactly the same business. And you could have similar things that you have in relation to the same business test in relation to these rules. Just sort of a cautionary point there. And then just one other question, and that is some people I spoke to have questioned whether it's an all or nothing approach, because apparently when you read through the rules and when you read through the legislation, apparently it sometimes suggests that it is an all or nothing. And then sometimes it suggests that a partial participation is possible. But I think it's definitely partial participation because you very rarely would have a business where all employees qualify. That's quite right. I have seen in a number of publications, including the explanatory memorandum, it is a one-in, all-in system. Seriously? Yeah. So, for example, the explanatory memorandum states that the employer cannot select which eligible employees will participate in the scheme. So, it's a one-in and all-in rule in, in that respect. But But when you actually go through the legislation... I'm not sure that that's exactly correct. Why I say that is because the legislation is actually quite mechanical and there's a lot of hoops and things that need to be jumped through. For example, you need to work out whether an employee is an eligible employee or not. And and they might not be an eligible employee because they don't meet the residency requirement or they were casual or they were too young 
or whatever it mm. might be. I think they meet all eligible employees that you can't go and cherry pick and you say, yes, I always liked yeah. you and I give it to you, but I didn't never really liked you. So yeah, I... yeah. And to be an eligible employee, the employee also needs to satisfy those notification requirements as well, which actually do require some level of choice. However, that's a choice for the employee rather than the employer. So it means it is not necessary that all eligible employees actually participate, but the employer has to offer it to all eligible employees. Yeah, well, well, even that interpretation, how the rules work is they work out, all these rules are getting at is what the employer is entitled to, what money is going to come back to the employer. And for example, they need to make the wage payments. So my reading of the legislation, if, this, if they don't make the wage payment, they don't get for a particular employee, they yeah, then, don't get the JobKeeper benefit for that employee. So I understand the intention is to cover everyone. And I think that's how it probably should apply. But when you actually look at the legislation, I don't think it's as clear cut as being a once in all in rule. And I can give you another example. I, I was speaking to someone earlier today and they explained a, a client who's had to transition from a more physical business to a more online business as a lot of companies had to do so. As a result of that transition, they actually needed to hire people who had the proper skill sets for the online business. So IT people, people in logistics, et cetera. There, there may be scenarios where as a result of the coronavirus and the COVID situation, employers have had to hire people after 1 March 2020. And those won't qualify as well. They won't qualify. So the JobKeeper rules have two separate divisions. One is regarding employees and one is regarding people who are not employees who are essentially deemed to be business participants. And the rules for the business participants category are a little different. One reason that's necessary is because those people are not employees. So for example, for the, for the business participant section, there is no requirement that the employer or the entity involved, because it may not be an employer, there's no requirement that that entity actually makes any payment whatsoever to the business participant. The general structure of the rules for business participants is very similar to, to the structure for the employers. You need to look at fortnights. You need to look at whether there's been a decline in turnover. You need to look at the business activities. And broadly speaking, that means quite a similar thing to it than what it does for the cash flow boost in that they need to be basically an active business before COVID-19. And the main thing is they need to also have an eligible business participant. And then there's notification requirements for that eligible business participant. But the eligible business participant is the thing that is unique about these rules as compared to the employee-employer rules. Yes, an eligible business participant would be the sole trader or would be one director of the company or would be one beneficiary of the trust or would be one partner of a partnership. Yeah, so there are a few rules before before you get to working out who it is. The first rule is that you can only have one eligible business participant per entity. So in your example, one director. And that entity, that individual can't be nominated under some other mechanism, as in from another business, or they can't be an employee either. So, so it needs to be someone who's essentially the job keeper payments are not being calculated by reference to currently. And there's a notification requirement for the entity as well, which... which it needs to notify the, the individual. Is it possible for a company, let's say a company has three directors and it pays two directors a wage and then the third one doesn't receive a wage. Is it possible to put the two directors who receive a wage into the first group as employees and then the third director who doesn't receive a wage to elect them as an eligible business participant. I've read somewhere, I think I read somewhere in the rules that a director or a sole trader or a partner or a, a beneficiaries can never be in the first group. Can never, Even if they are an employee, they can't receive the JobKeeper payment as an employee. They must always receive it as a business participant. Did I read that correctly? No, so how the rules work is the two categories, the, the employer-employee rules and the business participant rules are complementary to each other. In other words, a 
business can receive payments under both sets of rules potentially, not for the same people, but for different people. So for example, you could have a business that has employees and they've signed onto the scheme and the, and the business receives JobKeeper payments for those employees. The business can also receive a payment for the business participant as well, quite independently of the employees. Now, of course, if that business participant is already an employee, you can't can't get the benefit under both. They have to be different people. So in the example where perhaps you've got three directors, two of them are employees, those people would get the benefit under the employee rules. And the director who is not an employee, the benefit may come to the entity under the business participation rules. Where you then would have directors in one group and some directors in the other group. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. The rules are quite specific that they are excluded. They can't be an eligible business participant if the person is an employee. I see. Okay, good. So a director who is is an employee goes into the first group, doesn't go into the second group. But that is actually very good because it means the second group is available for another director. Yes. So how the rules work is that you need to look at whether there is an eligible business participant or not. And there's a number of criteria and exclusions, but in essence, there is really two things that are, that are necessary, leaving aside things like whether they're employed or not, which, which kicks them out or, or residency things. There's essentially two things that are the most fundamental. The first is the individual needs to be actively engaged in the business. I'll just repeat that. They need to be actively engaged in the business. So whoever this person is that you might be able to nominate, they need to be actively engaged. Now, those words are not defined. There's not a lot of other guidance in any of the rules on what active engagement means. We'll come back to it in a second. The second criteria is that the individual needs to be covered by the rules, and that will depend on what the entity is. So in the sole trader scenario, the individual will be the sole trader. And clearly, if it's a sole trader, they're going to be actively engaged in the business. It's not really, uh, if it's not them, who's it going to be? The second scenario is partnerships. For partnerships, the individual could be any of the partners of the partnership that are individuals. Generally, with a partnership, you would expect that that person would be actively engaged in the business. Although you can have some partnerships where perhaps someone is not engaged because it's it's yeah, a husband and wife husband and wife type partnership the more interesting scenarios are the trusts and the companies so if the entity is a company then it's whether they are a shareholder or a director and they are actively engaged i could probably make the argument quite convincingly that anyone who is a director sort of needs to be actively engaged by virtue of um, all the, you know, nasty things that apply to directors if they're, if they're not, like, you know, personal liability for GST and, and PAYG and all those kind of things. For a shareholder, I guess it's sort of a little bit more grey. What if you have a passive shareholder who's, who's just uh, investing capital into the, into the business? I suspect these arguments and, and some, maybe some further guidance on this will be, will be provided. So with a shareholder, you could actually make them an eligible business participant. So if let's say the company has two directors, they receive a wage, they're employed. And Mm -hmm. so they would go into the first group and then you have a passive shareholder. And Mm -hmm. so then the question is, do they qualify as an eligible business participant or not? Yeah, and that will boil down to whether they're actively engaged or not. And you could have someone who's who's somewhat passive who is actively engaged. Uh, so I know that's a bit of a contradiction, but you could have someone who's not an employee in a sense, but but is still somewhat engaged. The other sets of rules, the last set of rule applies to trusts. So if the entity is a trust, the individual needs to be an adult beneficiary of the trust. So if you've got a business that's being carried on by a discretionary trust, they just need to be a beneficiary of the trust, which, which as we know from discretionary trusts, the class of beneficiaries is usually extremely wide. There is nothing in the rules around 
the person actually receiving a distribution. It's not like, for example, the small business CGT concessions where you need to look at what distributions beneficiaries have actually received. Here, it's enough that they are a beneficiary of the trust and that should just be through the normal mechanisms of the trust deed, whether, whether it's possible for them to benefit under the trust. Okay, so some beneficiaries, again, could be employees, but then you can nominate one potential or actual beneficiary to be an eligible business participant. Yeah, correct. You could provided have a, they are actively engaged. Yeah, you could have a discretionary trust, family business, let's say, there's employees, but there might be at least one beneficiary who is not an employee, but is actively engaged in the business. That person can be nominated for as a eligible business participant. And what that would then mean is that the business would receive $1,500 per fortnight and, and without any obligation to actually pass that money on to the person nominated. One scenario that I thought of that could be a bit of a danger, and I think you've flagged this one as well, Heidi, is if you have a trust structure, but you don't have any beneficiaries that are individuals, Yes, so, the unit trust held by two discretionary trusts yeah, or, or more could, discretionary trusts. That could apply if you have a business carried on by a unit trust that doesn't have any hybrid type powers and the unit holders are either discretionary trusts or potentially companies. But so long as the unit holders are, are not individuals, in other words, you could be in a scenario where there is actually no beneficiaries of the unit trust that are individuals and therefore you cannot nominate anyone. From a structuring perspective, it's quite rare to see businesses carried on through unit trusts, but it does arise. And, and if those circumstances do arise, those businesses might need to think about what it can do to, to potentially qualify, if anything. I can't see what they can do. I can't see a way around it at the moment. Yeah, well, look, the only thing I could possibly suggest is one, to look at the trust deed very carefully and make sure and identify who is actually a beneficiary or who is a possible beneficiary. I say that because some unit trust deeds do have hybrid powers in them where they can distribute to people who are not necessarily unit holders that are related to unit holders. And there are other trustees where you might be able to introduce a new class of units that may be held by an individual. Or even in a more extreme example, you may be able to vary the terms of the trust to include hybrid powers. Now, I know some of these things might, you sort of got to consider avoidance yes, as part of this as well, 19. of course. But if mm. you are caught in that scenario, it's worth at least asking the question and considering, is there anything that can be done or is does it just mean that there's no one that can be nominated. Yes, but at least it's a good thought. And even though it wouldn't count anymore if you changed the deed now, but if the deed already mentions potential beneficiaries that are individuals, that's all mm. you need, as long mm. as that potential beneficiary is then actively involved in the business. Yeah, and of course, there's that requirement. They need to be actively involved in the business as well. But you're quite right to identify that scenario with, with the unit trusts, the way they, they could be in a situation where they actually can't nominate any person. Because the nice thing is it just needs to be a potential beneficiary. It doesn't need to be an actual beneficiary. So mm. that throws the net much wider. Yes. Two more questions for you. The first one is just touching on charities. Let's say it's a company limited by guarantee and an ACNC registered charity. So then you could nominate one director as the eligible business participant and then this charity would qualify for the JobKeeper payment, provided they had a drop in donations in either a month or a quarter of at least 15%. Unfortunately not. So to clarify, the business particip participation rules, they don't apply if an entity is a not non-profit body. So... I they see. need to be for profit. So a director of a charity, for, for example, can't, can't get that benefit, or the charity, so I should say, can't get the benefit for its director. Okay. So yeah. registered charities can only qualify for the JobKeeper payment through the first group if they yep. actually have 
employees, eligible employees that they pay $1,500 a month. They can't no. claim the JobKeeper payments through the business participation group. No, yeah. One of the criteria which is unique to the business participation group is that the entity needs to not be a non-profit body. I know that's a double ah. negative, but that's what the uh, that's what the rules say. So, so in other words, it needs to be for profit. Yeah, it needs to be for profit to use the business participation rules, hmm. or it can be a registered charity, but then they need to go through the first yep, group and actually have only. employees. For hmm. 15% drop in turnover. Yep. Very last, a listener question from Lynn. She wrote on the 14th of April and she writes, can you please clarify the following? If an employee is part-time and earns less than $1,500 per fortnight, are they eligible for JobKeeper or not? And does this JobKeeper payment received by the employer have to be repaid at some time in the future? Good question. So if you have an employee that, that is paid less than $1,500 per fortnight, you must, in order to get the JobKeeper benefits, you must meet the wage condition, which is that you need to pay them $1,500 per fortnight. It's sort of no strings attached. It's not a loan. It's not something that would need to be repaid in the future. So, so, so I suppose from where where we're at now is we've we've received quite a lot of more information through the publication of these rules in the explanatory statement. There's a number of things that employers and employees need to do in a relatively short time span, and I would refer to the ATO website to to actually work through those details regarding notifications and things like that. The things that we don't are still waiting on information about is predominantly the alternative tests for the for the decline in turnover. We'll get those in due course from the commissioner and then those will set out the alternative courses. For businesses that don't need the alternative courses, they should be considering taking the next steps and actually making JobKeeper applications next week from I believe the 20th of April. Welcome back. So the alternative test to prove a sufficient drop in turnover is the big question mark at the moment when you or your clients don't pass the primary test. But hopefully Treasury will issue some guidelines, hopefully this week, otherwise next week. Can I just quickly talk to you about the actual enrollment? Right now, it is Sunday the 19th of April, 9.48 a.m., And the enrollment was meant to go live tomorrow, Monday the 20th of April, but it is already live now. You can already enroll now. So let's talk about this, since there are two areas that really surprised me. But first of all, another thought, and that is, you can only enroll for the JobKeeper payment through the online services for agents or the business portal. And for both, you need a government ID. So that will probably put the discussion around extending the OSCE to an end. It seems to be that if you want to enroll for the JobKeeper payment, you need to get a government ID. And I guess that money will talk with this one. But now to the actual enrollment form and the two areas that really took me by surprise. So the enrollment starts as expected. It starts with asking you whether you are an entity registered with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, so the ACNC. So it basically asks you, are you a registered charity? And then the next question is whether your aggregated turnover exceeds 1 billion per annum. And both questions are straightforward. Then it asks you, for which months in 2020 have you experienced or are likely to experience a reduction in turnover? And you can choose any months from March 2020 to September 2020 in the drop-down menu. But it doesn't ask you about a quarter, but a month. Do you remember how we said that you can compare Q4 or Q1 to Q401 last year? In the enrollment form, there is no talk of quarters at the moment, just months. So that is the first thing that surprised me. Then it asks you whether the turnover for the entity has fallen or is likely to fall 30% or more. As you know, we are still unclear about the alternative test, but hopefully this is straightforward for you. 
And then it asks you for the number of eligible employees you want to claim the JobKeeper payment for. And it notes that you must have remunerated them with $1,500 or more per fortnight. And it splits it into two fortnights, one fortnight from the 30th of March to the 12th of April, and then fortnight two from the 13th of April to the 26th of April. And if you have employees, then this is straightforward. But here's the big issue that really took me by surprise. You can't enroll unless you have at least one employee. So if you are a sole trader or a company director or partner or beneficiary without employees and just a business participant who doesn't receive a wage but just dividends or distributions or partnership income, then the website doesn't accept your enrollment despite everything we've heard so far, not just on Tax Talks but other websites and other podcasts and webinars. So far, the advice has always been that a business participant without employees still qualifies if they meet the turnover test. So the enrollment form doesn't make sense here. And I'm quite worried about this because sole traders and others without employees already missed out on the cash flow boost. But my great hope was that sole traders at least receive the JobKeeper payment. But now it looks like they don't either unless they employ. So this really worries me. Hopefully, this is just a software issue that will be resolved soon. So back to the form, it asks you for the number of employees and then it asks you whether you want to enroll an eligible business participant. And you can say yes to this, but you only get this through without an error message. If you have listed at least one employee, if you have no employees listed, you can't enroll as a business participant at the moment. And then... At the end, you list the bank details you want the JobKeeper payment to go into, you list contact details, and then you click submit, and you get a confirmation message that your request has been successfully lodged, and then you get an ATO receipt ID of your lodgement. And then at the end, it says, it is important that you continue to review your eligibility and obligations under the law to ensure your ongoing eligibility as an employer and for the employees that you will confirm as eligible employees. So I read this as that we don't have to re-enroll for each fortnight going forward, but that we just have to advise the ATO if something changes, if the number of eligible employees changes. So that is the enrollment form as it stands at the moment on Sunday the 19th of April at now 9.53 a.m. In the next update, update number nine, Scott McKenzie of Velocity Legal in Melbourne We'll talk about the commercial tenancy code and that is a huge topic for clients at the moment who are unable to pay their leases as well as our landlord clients of course who have no or little lease payments coming in at the moment. So how does the government propose to solve this dilemma? Thank you for listening and thank you to class for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.